So it is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, just, I saw some, some Broncos fans walk in, so i got to give you a chance. Who will be pulling for the Broncos today? Yes, man. Even the people wearing Broncos shirts weren't very loud. So um, I, 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 I'm sorry if your team didn't make it. Uh, if if uh, you happen to pull for the Dallas Cowboys, let me teach you a, a trick that we've learned over the years. This is a phrase that you say. Um, Next year's our year. That's what you say. So if your team didn't make it, you can say that too. Uh, it's going to be fun getting into, uh, getting into a game tonight, but it's be sad to see football season go, except for those of you who are sick of football and you're ready for it to be over. Uh, we have been in this teaching series on the book of Acts, and man, it has been awesome going through the last few weeks. So far, we've seen some pretty amazing events. If you've been taking notes, you've seen, uh, we've seen that Jesus ascended into heaven. We've seen uh, some angels talking to some people. We see uh, the disciples going back and, and being a part of this big movement there in Jerusalem as they're kind of getting started. We've seen Jesus promise that he's going to come back to earth and collect his faithful followers. Last week, we saw 3,000 people get baptized and all of that is just in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts. It's a book packed with all kinds of action, all kinds of details, all kinds of story. It's a dynamic history of the history of the church, where it came from, and how the church spread around the world. And so we've been following through this book, which is pretty huge. I hope that you've been uh, reading along uh, during the week. Uh, I hope that you'll grab a Bible today before you leave if you don't have one and read along. Because to see the whole picture, you've really got to read it for yourself. In the book of Acts, there are 26 chapters. 26 chapters. And uh, that's a lot. It's a lot to take in. So what we've done is we've broken the book down into eight different parts. And each week, as a way to make it a little more memorable, we've taken kind of a focus word that sort of summarizes uh, the big idea of each part. So that through the course of the series, if you can remember those eight words, you can pretty much put back together and reconstruct the book of Acts for yourself. And so, like last week, we're going to start with a little pop quiz, see if anybody remembers from the last two weeks. The longer it goes, the more you have to remember, but this is only two. I'm wondering if anyone can remember the focus word for week one. Remember, remember that? Wait. It was wait. Very good. And Jesus is basically telling his disciples, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift that I'm going to give to you, which was the Holy Spirit. The second week, uh, what was the word? You remember last week? Helper. The word was helper. And we saw that gift of the Holy Spirit show up and really see where Jesus said, uh, you know, with, with man, this type of thing is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And so the Holy Spirit is God helping us. So wait and helper. And this word is, and today's word has already been kind of unveiled. Today's word is boldness. What we're going to see today is what happens when God begins to help people. When God begins to in, insert himself into people's lives, they become bold. They become empowered. They become confident. They become brave. The word is boldness. So we're going to slide into part three. Uh, this week, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be work, working through chapters three and four. We're going to move a little faster pace from here on out to get through the rest of the book. But chapters three and four, uh, grab a Bible, flip over there to Acts chapter three, or scroll down on your phone. I do want to say, as we say every week, if you don't have a Bible that's a good readable version of the Bible, uh, we have them that we give away for free. And so they're the ones that were scattered under your seats as you came in. Please take one of those home with you before you go. Let me give you a little check-in on where the church is. Uh, the, the book of Acts is the story of the beginnings of the church. And so in the first two chapters, here's what we see. We saw last week 3,000 people were baptized. And so that was really the beginning of the church, a big jump start that God, uh, that God assisted. We see them at the very end of chapter 2 that they were meeting together. They were sharing meals together. They were being taught by the apostles. Uh, and then 
they were spreading the word of Jesus like crazy. Um, and so this is what we see, the very last sentence in chapter 2. It says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's pretty cool. Like, think if you started an entrepreneurial endeavor, and if every single day people decided to jump on with what you were doing. It seemed like things were really going good for the church. Everyone that they told about Jesus, they would say, yeah, this is awesome. I, I, I want to accept this message. I want to be a Christ follower just like you. Up till now, it seems like everyone who heard the message was a fan. But you know that that's never been the truth in church, in the church. There's always been people around the world who are not fans of what's happening with the church or, or with God. And, and so you can expect that this is going to happen for the early church as well. In fact, today we're going to zoom into the story a little bit in chapter 3, and we're going to see the first bit of friction that the church receives from the outside community. And so that's what's going to go on. We're going to be in chapter 3, and there's so much to get into, so I want to jump right in. So look at your Bibles or look on the screen behind me, and let's just jump in. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, one day, Peter and John, remember Peter and John were two of the uh, premier leading disciples. They were the leaders of the church at this point. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. That was the name of this particular gate into the temple, where he was put every day to beg from those who were coming into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John, and Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. All right, let's just pause there real quick. It's not a surprise that Peter and John would be going to the temple, okay? They were Jewish men. Uh, they'd grown up going to the temple. The time of prayer was just a daily ritual that people who lived near the temple could go, and they could be in this time of worship together. And so uh, you, you might see the conflict there, because, okay, are these people Christians or are they Jews? Well, it's important to remember that Jews and Christians worship the same God, uh, the conflict comes over Jesus, the opinion of who Jesus was and what that means. So for Peter and John, it's no big deal to go to the temple. In fact, they still very much respected uh, their religious and cultural heritage there as Jews. So while they're going into the temple, they meet this guy who had been crippled from birth. He's called a lame man. Now, I, I, you find people like this all through the Bible that are just kind of generically mentioned, and I feel bad for those people. I wish that we had their names. And so in the past, I've like gone through and like, let's just, let's just give these people a name, can't we? So we can at least refer to this guy with some dignity. So, I, so I'm thinking of a good, a good, a good um, dignified name, and I'm thinking let's call this guy uh, Gary, okay? So this is Gary the lame guy. All right, so this is Gary, and we're going to call him Gary. And so this is something you need to know about Gary, okay? By law... The reason Gary was not in the temple during the time of prayer is that by law, he was forbidden to go in there. There was a common, um, let's call it a superstition among the Jews, that if you were lame, if you were disabled, if you were maybe mentally retarded, if you had some ailment along those lines, whether it's physical, mental, or health-wise, the common superstition was that you probably deserved it. The idea was that maybe you or your parents or your grandparents, they sinned in some big way, and so that's what's wrong with you. That Put the pieces together. That God punished you, okay? That's crucial to remember. Now, I need to tell you this. The Bible doesn't teach that, okay? There's actually nowhere in the Bible that we can find that this guy was actually lame because of some kind of sin, but that is the common cultural prejudice that were held against someone like him. And so that's why he's making his living begging for alms outside of the temple gates. Um, so... Peter hears from this guy, like a lot of people were, and unlike everyone else who was maybe walking by and paying him no mind, Peter decides to look at him. And Peter decides to engage this guy in a conversation. Have you ever had a, one of those friends that's got a favorite topic, 
And no matter what everybody else is talking about, they're going to somehow turn the topic around to what they want to talk about every single time. You might feel this way about people who play fantasy football. You're like, what? We weren't even talking about fantasy football. I know you do not own Cam Newton. Like, he's not yours. You can't have him. You might feel that way about someone who sells one of those, the, those products, one of those uh, protein shakes that makes your life better or whatever it is. Like, how do you always find a way to work this into our conversation? Well, that's Peter and John. They have a favorite subject, and their favorite subject is Jesus rose from the dead. Like, Jesus. They want to talk about Jesus. And as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, it's interesting how no matter where they are, they're like, I got something I want to talk about. Yeah, you got, you got uh, sandals on sale? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, it's like they just work it right in. So this guy is begging for uh, alms, and, he's, and, he's, and he looks and he says, give me some money. And they look at him, and they engage Gary in conversation. Look at verse 6. It says, Peter said, well, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he held him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Side note, if he'd been crippled his whole life, this might have been the first time he'd ever been able to go into the temple. Big deal for a Jewish man. We find out later he's 40 years old. Verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him. That's Gary. <laughs> and they, the man who used to be sitting at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Why? Because they'd seen him sitting there for 40 years or however long. I've met people who have asked me for money before, uh, people who are down on their luck, people holding cardboard signs, whatever. Most of us have, right? And I've felt pretty, you know, generous at times, charitable, and be like, you know what? Sorry, bro, I don't have any money, but let me take you up the street. I'll buy, you a, I'll buy you a sandwich, get you a slice of pizza, get you a burger, right? I feel pretty good about that. Like, you feel pretty good. I mean, we're not bragging. It's like, you feel good. Like, Peter and John totally trump all of our efforts here, right? They're like, uh, he says, I'm sorry, bro, I don't have any money, but how about, would you like for me to restore your ability to walk? <laughs> would that be all right? In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this is the temple, and it's the time of prayer, so there are a lot of people there. And so the people that were there, they were amazed, they recognized the man, Gary, or they knew his real name. And they're like, that's him. What? And so they stand around Peter and John. They're utterly amazed. They're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. They knew it was a miracle. And they were astonished. In verse 12, we see what happens when they start to gather around Peter. Peter saw this, and he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. There he goes again, his favorite subject. He says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name that the faith comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. And just like in chapter 2, when the helper came and the people were amazed by the disciples who were speaking in tongues, you remember if you were here last week, you saw that, it was just, and people were like, what is this? Peter immediately takes the attention off of himself and off of the disciples and puts it on his favorite subject, Jesus. He's like, this wasn't me. 
You think by my own godliness? I did no. And also, like in chapter 2, this gives him the perfect opportunity to invite this group of people to join the movement. Look at verse 19. We'll fast forward just a bit. This is what he says after his little speech, his little sermon. He says, so repent then and turn to God, which, by the way, is a great definition, definition for the word repent. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Real quick, how would that be? How does that sound, a time of refreshing? Oh, man. Like that day where you're just like, it's vacation, it's like halfway through the week, and you got your feet up on the pool and you're sunburned, is it quite that bad yet? And you're just like, <sighs> and this is what Peter is promising. It's an additional promise. We've seen that when people accept Jesus, they get forgiveness of their sins. We see that they get the gift, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He also says, and refreshing from the Lord. And by the way, this isn't only true for people in the book of Acts back then over there in the Bible. It's true for us now. That if we live for Jesus and we put faith in him, he will forgive us of our sins. He will give us the Holy Spirit. And he will bring us the refreshing that we need. But moving on, at this moment, something pretty awesome has happened. Mostly everyone's having a good time. They're at the temple. People saw a guy get healed. This one dude's like, woohoo, I can walk. And uh, then you got this other group of people. And they weren't having a good time. We find out about them as we cross into chapter 4. Okay, so cross on into chapter 4 of Acts in verse 1. It says, The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees, remember that word, Sadducees, it was kind of, it wasn't a political party, but it was kind of a religious party. It was like a, a group of, of a persuasion of thought. Okay, so the, the Sadducees. They came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Remember that phrase too. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message that day believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 5,000. And so now the whole church, if you look in chapter 1, there's 120 people huddled up in an upstairs room going, what are we going to do? Here we are just a few weeks later, 5,000. And it says 5,000 men, and a first century way of counting would be you would count the, the heads of household or the men in a group. And so there, there might be, when you count the women and children, there might be ten or 15,000 people. It's a large percentage of the whole city of Jerusalem. Everyone seemed to be having a good time, but there were a few who weren't feeling it. Because there were a few, let's call them issues, that arose. Uh, the first one had to do with this. Remember I said, remember the name Sadducees? The Sadducees, it was a, a popular belief among this group of the Sadducees who were kind of the uh, religious majority in the temple. And so they were kind of the, the, uh, the leading party of the temple, the Sadducees. The Sadducees had this age-old debate about what they called the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they didn't believe in what they called the resurrection of the dead. And for them, it meant a variety of things. One thing it meant was they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. They didn't necessarily believe there was a heaven or a hell or any kind of thing after that. It's just like God blesses us in this life, and then we go on somewhere. But we don't know where. And so this concept, resurrection of the dead, was a big deal. That's what Jesus and the apostles were always talking about. <laughs> That's what they were all about. So the Sadducees had a hard time accepting the whole message that not only are we talking about some sort of afterlife, but we're talking about this guy Jesus, and his big claim is what? Resurrection from the dead. They've got a problem with that. 
And we will go deep into that whole subject, but as the ruling party of the temple, they kind of had some sway, and that's one reason why the apostles uh, get arrested here. But the second reason is this, and it had to do with the miracle. The miracle. And on the, on the surface, we might say, well, who would have a problem with healing Gary? Like, poor guy? He needed a hand up? You don't, have, you don't want to help this guy up? Like, you, they've healed him. How, how are we going to punish the guys who healed him? But remember what the stigma was about somebody who was crippled and lame. The, the understanding was, this guy is lame for a reason. God punished him. How dare you come in here and undo what God did? You see the perspective there? And like at my house, if I come home from work and my wife has been with the kids and she has punished them, she has sent them to their room, I would be out of my mind to walk in the house and be like, guys, punishment over, dad's home. Like that's a husband fail. Like don't do it, guys. Why? Because on my wife's authority, she's punished our kids. And how dare I come in without first talking to my wife and figure out what's going on and reverse that punishment. And how dare these guys come in and undo a punishment that everyone in town believed that God did. And so even while the crowd was really excited about what's going on with Gary, the temple leadership is like, we got some questions. You got some explaining to do, Peter and John. And so they lock him up to the next day till they can get to the bottom of it. Remember, this is not America where you're innocent until proven guilty. This is first century Jewish law where you are suspect until we can believe beyond a reasonable doubt that you're innocent. They got some explaining to do. Let's look at how it plays out in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, So the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and many others from the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And this was their main question. This was the trial, in essence. By what power or what name did you do this? That's the question that needed to be answered, right? Because here's the deal. We get that you healed this guy. That happened. The guy is jumping and leaping and praising God. It's amazing. But by whose power did you do it? Because if you're on our team, we're cool with that. But if you're playing for the other team, see, they suspected that maybe they work for the devil. Maybe there's demonic forces involved. And if that's the case, we got we to gotta, we gotta shut you down. You can't be coming to the temple with that. These leaders that gathered, you read that list, Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and others from the high priest family. These leaders were the bosses of the temple. Okay, and uh, there, were like, there were thousands of priests uh, I believe in the reading I did this past week, there was something like 20,000 priests that you know, resided in and around the area of Jerusalem and the outer countries. Uh, just like there's lots and lots of pastors in a city. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people who would come and perform, perform acts in the temple to do work for the temple. But there was only one high priest. He was the grand poobah. He was the big dog. His name at this time was Annas. Okay, so he was there. He was there to preside over this trial, over Peter and John. Not only that, but his dad... Caiaphas was there. Caiaphas had been the high priest before Annas. And Annas and Caiaphas had presided over the trial that ended up in Jesus being crucified. These are the same dudes. That's why Luke lists them here. Because the early Christians would have known these names. They were big players in the Jewish community. So, you got to imagine this had to be intimidating for Peter and John. To have to face this huge ruling council, imagine that. This is like the Supreme Court justices of the Jewish law. It's at this point where I think we need to kind of have a quick pause and step back. If this were a movie, uh, this is where the edges of the screen would get a little bit blurry, and Peter and John would get a dreamy look in their face, and they'd have a flashback. 
okay? Because there's a flashback I want to tell you about. It turns out that one time Jesus had actually foretold a moment like this. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 11. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't want to look it up. But here it is. This is Jesus talking. He says, when you were brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you would defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you are to say. That's a flashback, remember? So things are coming back into focus. And I, wonder, I feel certain that Peter and John remembered this at this moment. And they said a little prayer. They're like, okay, Holy Spirit, it's about time for you to show up. <laughs> teach me what to say. And he showed up. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands here before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. That little sentence, save that in your mind. We're going to get back to it in just a minute. Then he says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there was no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so Peter stands straight up and he looks them straight in the eyes and he says, you want to know by whose authority I did this? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. It wasn't us. We don't work for the devil. It was Jesus. And as if these guys who had just recently presided over Jesus' trial and execution might have forgotten, Peter reminds them, you remember Jesus, the one that you sentenced to death, but that God raised from the dead, and that everybody in town's talking about right now. In fact, there's 15,000 people outside who are with me. And of course, this powerful council isn't just going to be like, oh, okay, Peter, if you say so. Sorry, guys, big mistake. Peter says we're good. Peter wants to add a little bit of credibility to what he says that the Jewish leaders are going to accept. And so that's that phrase that I said let's go back to. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. You can study that a lot, but it comes from one of the most uh, prolific prophets of the Old Testament that had been prophesying about the coming Messiah. And he talks about the foundations of this, uh, of this new kingdom. And he says that there's going to be a, a, a stone that's going to be rejected by the people. But the, the truth is, he's going to be the, the cornerstone of the kingdom. It's just a metaphor. But Peter wants to make sure that these well-read Jewish leaders understand Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of your prophecy. And Peter's normally a little long-winded when he speaks, but not today. Not today. He, he answers their question, and then he quotes a prophet. And he adds a little stinger on the end. He says, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then he stops talking, and he waits. I, I simply cannot overstate this next thought. Okay, so I want you to take this in. What Peter has just said to this ruling council called the Sanhedrin, what he has just said to them is nothing short of completely undermining the entire Jewish law. To suggest for a second that something or someone is capable of saving a person other than the Jewish law. What they believed was the law is it. This is God's gift to us. 
And Peter comes in and says, the Messiah came. By the way, he was the son of God, which would have been seen as a blasphemous statement to make, which was a crime punishable by death all by itself. And we don't need your law anymore, which is the very thing that have given these guys their occupation. It's a big deal. I can't understand how, understate how big of a deal it was that Peter says this. And on top of that, to suggest that the law is no longer needed. Jesus is the salvation. What are these guys doing? Peter and John. It takes guts. It takes confidence. It takes determination. The word for all of this is boldness. Boldness. To stand in the face of something that seems incredibly risky and doing what you believe is the right thing. Look at what happens. We're going to look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They're kind of standing there, these these Jewish leaders, with their mouths open and taking in the situation, maybe even a little bit stunned. And this next sentence is my favorite, I think, out of this whole two chapters that we're reading. Verse 14. This is just, feel the humor in this with me. This is awesome. Verse 14. But since they could see that the man had been healed, was standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. There's Gary right there. <laughs> like, he, is, he is walking after all. Like We've all seen him by the gate. Verse 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. That's the name of that Jewish council. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. And they said, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from happening, from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. That's their solution. They feel stuck. They don't approve of what's going on, but they can't see how to fight it. So they're just going to try to intimidate these disciples, just to shush them up. (laughs) Just don't do it anymore. So they come out. At this point, Peter and John, they don't even realize it yet, but they're about to get completely off the hook with little more than a warning. But that's not going to be good enough for Peter and John. I want you to pay attention what their reaction is when they hear the verdict. It says in verse 18, Then they called them in again. They come back in, guys. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter replied, this is what he says, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. And they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened, which after all, as priests, is one of their primary duties. Wow. Peter and John stand and they look directly down the barrel of the loaded gun and they say, sorry, not sorry. we got to talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. We've got to obey God. Bottom line. And then they walked out. And that was the trial. You know, true boldness, um, true boldness, what is it? I think it would be easy for us to say, um, well, of course they were bold. They're Peter and John. Like, they're in the Bible. Like, of course they're bold. We would expect them to be bold. But, but no, I, I don't think it's just that simple. 
Let's imagine something for a minute, okay? I wish that there were times in history where we had like a candid camera hiding in a room and we could see what went on. Like I wish we could have had a security camera recording Peter and John in their prison cell the night before. I wonder what their posture was. I wonder what they talked about. Did they get any sleep? They knew what they were up against. They knew the charges that they were facing. They knew that it hadn't been that long ago that this same Jewish council had been uh, with their leader, Jesus, and for similar crimes had sentenced him to death. I wonder what it was like in that prison cell. Did they write letters to their family? Did they believe that they were going to die the next day? Maybe it would have been tempting for them to come up with like a a cover-up story. You know, like, okay, look, we can get out of this. Uh, See, what had happened was, it was Gary's idea. Gary, stop it, Gary. Always getting us in trouble. And you you can hardly blame them, right? This is a very intimidating moment. What did they think about? What What were they going through in that cell? In fact, I found that opportunities for boldness almost always come with some level of fear. You ever been there? Like whether it was talking to somebody at work about something that was confrontational or maybe asking for a promotion or asking someone to marry you. Like that's pretty bold, right? There's this element of fear in it because of whatever. But the people who become world changers, the people who make a difference, they're the people who are set apart by their boldness. And I think one thing that separates followers from leaders is boldness. I've heard it said that boldness is behavior born out of belief, that comes with a known risk. Take that in. I didn't make this up. Behavior born out of a belief that comes with a known risk. It's an interesting definition. In other words, what you believe about something will affect how you behave. It determines your actions. Think about Rosa Parks. You know that name? 1955. She was asked to get up out of a seat in a bus. But she believed the discrimination because of race was wrong. So she stayed in her seat. It was bold. Boldness is a behavior born out of a belief, and it comes with a known risk. Rosa Parks went to jail, but she was glad to do it because she said it's worth the risk. I'm not scared of the risk, but I couldn't live with myself if I took the safe way out instead of taking the risk. Boldness. When it comes to being bold for God, I think we can learn a lot from Peter and John and their actions, from what the Jewish leaders said to them in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Let's go back to that. Let's revisit the Sanhedrin. They said, this is talking about the Jewish council, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. How do we live bold lives? What can we learn about boldness from this whole story? And what does it mean to you as an individual and us as a church family? I think there are three things that I just want to kind of jot off for you and see if they stick. Because I think these are three things that we can really learn from about being bold. And the first one is this. It's what we see from the Jewish leaders is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Peter and John were uneducated fishermen from Galilee. Galileans were constantly the butt of jokes for Jews. Uh, people ref- felt like the Galileans were kind of like the hillbilly redneck 
backwoods people, of the Jewish people. I'm not saying that to be discriminatory. It was just like that was just kind of culture. They lived way off uh, by some lakes up there in the northern part of the country. They were fishermen. They were uneducated. They didn't live near the big city. And so the first thing that blows these religious leaders' minds is these are regular, ordinary, uneducated men. You know, that, that could actually be the subtitle of the whole Bible. <laughs> God uses extraordinary people to do, ex- God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Because that's the story. Over and over again, you don't have to have all the books of the Bible memorized even, or have the, this great wisdom to be able to stand up and make a difference for God. In fact, I believe that God prefers you just like you are. God uses ordinary people. Here's the second thing I think we learn. Your boldness will amaze people. The Jewish council, it says that they were astonished. You can see by their reaction, by the verdict that they packed out, passed out, they were kind of like, what do we do with these guys? It's what happens in the story, and it's what happens when it comes to us talking about Jesus. Our boldness can be worth the risk. And the people who hear it sit up and they take notice. Not because of your articulate words, not because you blew their mind about exactly what you said, often just because of the fact that you were willing to speak up. Boldness comes from a belief. It comes with a known risk, but it will amaze people. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Your boldness will amaze people. And the last thing is this. Boldness comes from spending time with Jesus. The last thing that these, these uh, Jewish leaders said as they were kind of evaluating the situation, it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And that's where you start. Time with Jesus. These guys had spent years following him around. In fact, if you were to rewind their story, if you know much about the disciples' lives, you might relate to them a lot more than you think. Whenever you feel foolish or feel like you don't have the right words to say or feel like you're doing the wrong stuff, you look at all the different times in the Bible where Jesus talks to the disciples where he's training them. He's like, no, not, not like that. That's not what I think. And they'd ask him some boneheaded question. He'd say, he said this, how long must I be with this wicked and perverse generation? Like, has anyone ever said that to you? That's kind of low. But what Jesus is saying is like, man, don't you get it? But that doesn't disqualify them from doing the amazing things that they did. How did they grow? How did they learn? They spent time with Jesus. Today's focus word, and the word that I believe is crucial for our church to understand, is boldness. Boldness. What would it look like if we were truly a bold church? Let me rephrase that. What would it look like if we were a church full of bold people? Each one of us taking ownership of whatever belief we have and standing on it as strong as we can. What would it look like if our church family decided to learn from this first church family and they decided, I'm going to talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for me. It'll be my favorite subject. I will always turn the conversation into something about Jesus. And I'll take the risk. Whatever it is, I'll take the opportunity. Does it make you nervous? It makes me nervous still. I'll be sitting in the coffee house or in a place somewhere working during the week and I'll have this inkling to just... Start talking to somebody. Not like come preaching at them. I don't do this like in coffee houses. That would be weird. But just sit down and meet somebody. And the fear is like, someone would be going, well, who are you, creepy dude, sitting talking to me? And that's happened. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many truly meaningful relationships I've built simply out of the fact that I've said, I just want to learn about this person and learn to love them like Jesus would. 
It's a risk. It's bold, but it's worth it. It's totally worth it. We live in a world where we'll talk. We live in a world where talking about what you believe is completely acceptable, but standing up for what you believe is considered intolerance. And I don't think that's the message that Jesus has for the world. I think that he says it's worth it. In fact, Peter said this in in chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And if that's true, if it's true that Jesus is the only path to salvation, the only path to forgiveness, the only path to that time of refreshing, then it's worth the risk. People will thank you. Thank you for taking the risk to talk to me. Because I didn't know. I thought it was something else, and I'm so glad you clarified it for me. Maybe you don't believe it's true. Maybe you're still deciding what you believe. My question is, what would it be for you to be bold and to say, I just need to find out for sure. Like, I need to have some more conversation. I need to dig in and have some of my questions answered. I got good news for you. This is the place to be. This group of people right here, I mean, I love, I love every one of you. The ones that I know. The ones that I don't know, I don't know yet. I don't want to be dishonest. I don't know you. But <laughs> here's my tongue. Here's my cheek right here. I really, I, I really, I love you guys. And I love our community that we've built here because we're a place where it's okay to fail. And we're a place where it's okay to ask questions. And you don't have to check your intellect at the door, nor do you have to check your baggage. You can come right on in and you can say, look, this is the questions I got. Somebody talk to me. And so if you're wondering if it's worth the risk, Find somebody in here who find out that it has and is worth the risk and ask them and they'll tell you all about it. And this one thing you got to know, that that's the message of Christianity. Verse 12, Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And it's worth the risk for me to say it. Let's be a church that's bold. Let's stand on boldness. And let's change this world and shine light in dark places. I'm going to pray for you guys this morning. Lord, we love you, and uh, I thank you for the boldness of men and women who have gone before me, much bolder than I am, doing just crazy stuff, traveling around the world, going to dangerous places where just to suggest some sort of different religious ideology was, it could get you killed, and they do it time in and time out. It's because they know that it's worth the risk. I thank you for the first church who stood uh, up against many of them, their parents and their grandparents, to say, listen, I respect uh, Jewish faith, and I respect the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I, but you've got to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And they, they took a stand, and there were still those who weren't ready to hear it. Lord, I pray this morning for those who have not been ready to hear it. Lord, give us the opportunities, the relationships, the love, the patience, the five to ten years that it might take. It's worth it. May we be bold, and may we follow your lead with your help. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.